0: Okay, if you would take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, and we'll look at the last of the seven churches of Revelation, seven churches of Asia, which have been seven churches, they they were all in Turkey, what is today modern day Turkey. You don't think of a turkey today as a very Christian, but uh, there was quite a few churches. Of course, most of these were in southwestern Turkey, southwestern Turkey, uh, these churches. They were all basically in the same area, pretty close together, probably 50, 60 miles apart, I suppose, at that time. Um, but anyway, Revelation thirteen, verse or thir- 3, verse 14 Says unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, Write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor. And blind, and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich; and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed; and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Titled simply this, Laodicea, the Compromising Church. The Compromising Church. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have to open your precious word, and I pray that as we study your word, and I pray that you'd help me to uh, uh, bring forth the word of God tonight that would encourage, that would glorify our Lord Jesus Christ and edify your people for your glory and for your honor. And have your will and way, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Laodicea, of course, the last of these seven churches in South western Turkey, about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia and and um, 40 miles west of Ephesus. Ephesus was along the Mediterranean Sea, along the coast, on the west side of Turkey, southwest side, and uh, Laodicea was 40 miles inland. Uh, it was at a juncture of several roads not far from Colossae. In fact, it it is, it is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 and and verses 12 through 16, uh, Paul mentions Laodicea and also Hierapolis, and these, these cities were all in the same area, pretty close proximity. In Colossians 4 verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. They may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Uh, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. salute the brethren which are in Laodicea in Nymphis, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause it that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, it is, it, it is really believed that Paul never visited Colossae or Hierophilus or Laodicea. In fact, somewhere in here, in this epistle of Colossians, uh, he says that, uh, actually it's chapter 2, verse 1, he says, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And again, he mentions Laodicea in that verse. So it's believed that Paul didn't start the church there, but that probably one of his converts did, maybe Epaphras, who also... Who did travel with Paul some, but it appears was a a, a pastor uh, or a fellow helper at uh, Colossae. But anyway, so uh, it was. they saw all cities were all in close proximity. It was a prosperous and self-sufficient city. Banking was a big industry, big thing there in in uh, uh, Laodicea. I mean, it was so self-sufficient that in 61 or 62 A.D., it was ravaged by and destroyed by an earthquake, and it rebuilt itself without help from Caesar. We don't need your help. We got money. We'll do it ourselves. And they did. They rebuilt themselves. Uh, It was known for its production of fine black wool, and hot mineral springs were in that area, from which they had minerals they made eye salve to anoint eyes. Uh, or some, so it was also a a uh, known for its medical uh, things. Uh, the word Laodicea, the name, means the custom or opinion of the people, or the people rule. That's a fitting name when you read the description or the condition of this church. So the name Laodicea means rule of the people. Uh, this represents this church well. It was ru- run by majority rule instead of God. One commentator said, quote, its name designates it as a church of mob rule, the democratic church, quote, unquote, in which everything is swayed and decided by popular opinion, clamor, and voting, unquote. It's kind of where America's headed, isn't it? Uh, and that's the way a lot of churches are today. You know, we call them seeker sensitive. You know, the 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 uh, yeah, I can't even remember the names now. Uh, Rick Warrens and the uh, uh, the guy that really started it, um, who's resigned, who's not, re- he's retired. But there were some some allegations against him, but he has resigned uh, from up in Chicago area and for some reason I can't remember. Anyway, they, they send out questionnaires, what do people want of a church? And then they cater the church to meet the wants of the people. It's how they build churches. And this is really what this is. So as we consider this tonight, we want to notice first of all the character of the Lord in addressing his church in verse 14. He says, Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So he describes himself with three different designations here. First of all, the Amen. And the word Amen here means firm or faithful. And it speaks of one who does not change. He does not change. whose word will not be altered to suit what pleases you and fit your opinions. God doesn't change. God doesn't bow to the desires of man. He is no respecter of persons. He is the same to everyone. He has no favorites or pets. He's the same to everyone. He is firm. He is faithful. You know, he's saying to this church, look, I and the word of God are unchanging. So be it. That's what amen really means. So be it. Yeah. Uh, you know, we live in a world, we talked about this morning, where authority is, is being rejected. And, of course, we saw the basis of authority is God. But, and, but we need to understand, as God's people, God does not change. He will not change for us. Yeah, we may not like what he says. It ain't gonna change it. It isn't gonna alter it. You know, people are attempting and have attempted through the years to alter and change the Word of God to soften it to suit the wishes of man. I said for a long time, you know, this this Bible version, multiplicity of Bible versions is nothing more than. Than, than the pursuit of money uh, and the pleasing of the flesh. You know, we take out the words of abom- like abomination. Uh, we water down the deity of Christ. Uh, we make it less offensive. That's what they're trying to do with the word of God. Make it less offensive. You know, one, one preacher, I don't agree with a lot of the things, but one preacher said he was on with an interview with Ben Shapiro, and he said, my job is to defend everyone. He said, I try to offend everyone. And uh, he said, the word of God will offend you. See, if you you need to be, he said, if the gospel is offensive, if I don't offend you or bring you to disorder, you're not going to realize your need. You see, so the Lord is the amen. He's the firm, faithful one. He does not change. He's also called the faithful and true witness. It's interesting he uses that word again, but the word faithful here means worthy of trust, that can be relied on. You know, again, because he is the Amen, the firm and faithful one, he is worthy of our trust. He can be relied on. You can, you can, you can count on it that what God said he is going to do. That God does keep his promises. Uh, Paul talked about this when he wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy two two, talking about faithfulness and, and being worthy of trust or men whom he relied on. He said, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men. In other words, men that can be relied on, who shall able, be able to teach others also. It, it is wonderful to To be in a church where you can rely on people you know, i 'm looking at a group of people that I, I can count on when you know when we started sanding this floor and I was working all day Thursday and i 'd worked most of that week on it too, and I was working all day Thursday and and uh, I said, you know, I don't, I don't know how we're going to get this done. You know, a missions conference coming up, and there was a wedding coming up, and, you know, there was a lot of things. That was, I think it was a missions conference that was first, and we wanted to have it done before then. And I said to, to my wife, I said, I guess what I'll do is I'll go home. You know, it was already 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I'll go home and study a little bit, and we'll have the service, and I'll just work through the night. She said, honey, and you're going to give us a bag of Doritos for church tonight. Call the men. And they'll all come. Cancel the service. There's no law that says we have to have a service tonight. And if you just give us a bag of Doritos, we may as well not have one. Well, you know, what she was saying was true. And, you know, I made some phone calls and all the men showed up. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be able to rely, have people that you can count on, you can trust, that they're faithful. So we're talking about, you know, one that God can be relied on. He will keep his word. He's the true witness. The word, the, 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 the word true here means real or genuine. The word witness means that he is a faithful Interpreter it refers to faithful interpreters of God's counsels. Uh, again, you know you can take God at His word, and 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 what Jesus said says will come to pass. It is true. So what He saying to them is what I am about to say you, to you is the truth and can be relied on it. You can depend on it. You need to heed it. You need to obey it. It's for your good. I am the faithful and true witness. Thirdly, he's called the beginning of the creation of God, the end of verse 14. And and this isn't referring to the fact that, or isn't saying that Christ had a beginning. Actually, the word beginning here means that by which anything begins to be. In other words, the origin or the active cause. So he's saying, I'm the one, I'm the origin of all things. I'm the active of cause of all things. In Colossians chapter one, and this this, by the way. Was to be read at Laodicea, so this wasn't a new thing that's being addressed to them. They've heard this before, some 30 years earlier, and evidently the church had some issues 30 years earlier <laughs> that uh, Paul had wrote this letter to Colossians. Said and, and has also wrote one to Laodicea, which we don't know, we don't have record of. It wasn't canonical, wasn't scriptural, so it wasn't preserved for us, but but he had written a letter to them, and, but the one at Colossae was kept. And, and in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, he says, "...giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image," talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, "...who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature." For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before or the origin or the cause of all things. And by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So Paul had instructed them concerning this some 30 years earlier. You know, so this church would have been in their second or third generation, really, at this point of John's writing. because so you're talking about the mid-90 AD. And the point is this. This is the creator that's talking to you. This is the designer of the world, the universe, and you. I know the end from the beginning. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I made you. I know the heart of every one of you. I uh, know the only thing that will meet the, need of, meet the need of your heart and bring peace with God. Therefore, you need to take heed to what I say. It's for your own good. Because what he's about to say is very, we would say, Critical. So listen up, church. He's saying, you know, the pastor would have probably read this. This is not just your pastor. It's the word of the living God. Who is the judge of the quick and the dead? And your fate is determined by how you respond to him. Your fate is determined by how you respond to him. You know, the pastor would have got up and read this. And he might have said, you know, you're not going to answer to me. You're going to answer this one who wrote you this letter. See, I'm not your problem. You don't have to deal with me. You can thank the Lord for that. But we do have to deal with the Lord. We have to face him. And so, we see the character of the Lord here. Secondly, the condition of the church. In verse 15 through 17, he gives uh, four things. Four things I want to note. First of all, He describes them as cold. Verse 15, I know thy works. Thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. The word cold means sluggish, inert in mind, one destitute of warm Christian faith and desire for holiness, having no inherent power of action. And the word hot means boiling hot. Of fervor of mind and zeal. You know, a good example of a of a of somebody that was hot or zealous was the Apostle Paul. I mean, he burned with zeal. He was tireless in his service for the Lord, his love for the Lord, and his service for the Lord. But he says, these are cold. You're cold. You're indifferent. You don't care. You have no zeal for the Lord. You know, they would have claimed him as Savior, but they, you know, they're like many today, and they would say, well, let's not be overzealous. God understands. Times have changed. Like one lady said to Brother Green, you know, we're not in the 90s. You know, some people say, well, you know, I have to live in this world, and you expect me to surrender every part of my life? Even my personal life, my actions, my attitudes, my secrets? You know, doesn't that sound like the average church go today? You know, my personal life is my business. And doesn't have any bearing on my relationship with Jesus. Hmm. I don't find that in the scripture. I don't find that in the scripture. You know, my music, whether I drink a little or not, the way, we, way I dress, the Bible version I use, you know, all these things are viewed by many, even many independent Baptists, as non-essentials. They call them non-essentials. Had an independent Baptist preacher friend talking about dress, described it as a dead issue. Another described it as divisive issue. So what do they do? They avoid them like the plague. They avoid them. See, they don't talk about these things because they're divisive. And You know, well, you know, preacher, I can believe my own way. You know, I thought about this here some time ago, about somebody that wanted to believe their own way. I'd like to ask them, would you build a house with splintered wood? But yet you think we can have splintered opinions in the church and be strong? It can't be done. It can't be done. You see, the modern churchgoer wants a Savior, but not a Lord. That's what they want. They just want a Savior. They don't want a Lord. Don't give me this Lord stuff. I just love Jesus. Yeah, Barna Research, an article called The State of the Church 2016, says most Americans identify as Christians. <laughs> really? It says almost, and I'm not going to read all this for sake of time, but, quote, almost three-quarters of Americans, 73%, say they are Christian. But out of that 73%, it says, you know, in, in another paragraph, quote, even though a majority of Americans identify as Christians, which would be 73%, and say religious faith is very important in, in their life, These huge proportions belie the much smaller number of Americans who regularly practice their faith. When a variable like church attendance is added to the mix, a majority becomes a minority. When a self-identified Christian attends a religious service at least once a month and says their faith is very important in their life, Barna considers that person a practicing Christian. And after applying this triangulation of affiliation, self-identification, and practice, the number drops to around one in three U.S. adults, 31%, who fall under this classification. So, you know, 73% say they are Christian. Americans say they're Christian. But out of that 73%, only 31% would attend church even once a month. You know, something wrong there because my Bible says Christ died, the church, that Christ loves the church, that the church is Christ's body. Well, I love Jesus, just hate his body. Something wrong there, isn't there? Uh, another article of my Lifeway research, April 25th, 2017, says Americans have a positive, positive view of the Bible. And many say the Christian scriptures are filled with moral lessons for the day, for for today. The only problem is, uh, according to a new study from Nashville-based Way Research, small wonder many church leaders worry about biblical illiteracy, said Scott McConnell, executive director for Way Research, most Americans don't know firsthand the overall story of the Bible because they rarely pick it up. What's the Bible about? Well, I don't know just has a lot of good moral lessons in it. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and the redemption of mankind. And he ended, this article ends with this. Overall, Americans seem to like the Bible but don't have much urgency about reading it. Cold. Indifferent. That's how this church was. It was cold. Secondly. Not only it was cold. It was revolting. Verse 17. Or verse 16. So then because thou art lukewarm. And neither cold nor hot. I will spew thee. Out of my mouth. Now this word is This is the only time in the Bible it's used. In the New Testament. And it means. To throw up. That's what it means. It means to reject with extreme disgust. So they were to God, to God, they, Jesus saying to me, You're disgusting. You're disgusting. Be like looking at a decayed roadkill along the road. You say, That's disgusting. An example I thought of was in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, where Jehoiakim became king and he did the abominations that Manasseh did. Actually, Jehoiakim rebuilt the altar of Moloch that Manasseh had built and Josiah, Manasseh's son, who was Jehoiakim's father, Josiah had destroyed it. But Jehoiakim rebuilt it. He rebuilt what God, what Josiah had destroyed, and that which God detested. And, and because of that, you know, the Bible says that that uh, you know God sent prophets and 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 uh, judges and so on, and they restoned them and rejected them until there was no remedy. It was so bad God couldn't stand it anymore and he just rejected them. It was captivity. And that's the way this church is pictured. You're revolting. What you're doing is disgusting to me. That's a serious charge from the Lord. Thirdly, or thirdly, they were deceived, verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So they were deceived. They said, "Hey, we're rich. We have lots of goods. You know, we have money. We have possessions. We have no needs." And the modern-day churchgoers say that must mean we are blessed of God. I mean, our church is growing. We are prospering. We have everything we need. We have a billion-dollar building, and we have all this, and we have that, and... I guess that means God is pleased with us. After all we are growing. So is Islam. So is Mormonism. You know, just because one prospers or appears to prosper doesn't mean it's of God. Sometimes people brag about what the Lord has done. <laughs> so, like the camp director, that would brag about praying for God to meet needs and how God would always supply. And one board member said, Yep, he, he does pray, and then he goes and visits the millionaire. Yeah. You know, people say, Well, we must be doing something right. Our church is growing. You know, the Pharisees also said they were never in bondage to any man while they were in bondage to Rome. You know, I'm afraid there's a lot of people that think because they pray to prayer and ask Jesus to save them that everything's okay, but they never repented, never surrendered their will to Jesus. You know, many people just wanted deliverance from their problems. Not a Lord Jesus. One commentator said this the Laodiceans quote quote The Laodiceans put their trust in material prosperity, in outward luxury, and in physical health. They had a lot of medical things there at Laodicea. They felt like they didn't need anything. The loss of a sense of need as the drowsiness that besets a freezing man is fatal. Unquote. You know, they tell me, I've never been close to freezing to death, but they tell me when you freeze to death, you actually feel warm. You feel warm. I read a story one time of John Elliott. He was a a, a Canadian forest ranger who tramped all day through snow and he came to his cabin. He was chilled. He had a big St. Bernard dog with him, but he was chilled, and he was so chilled that he couldn't get a fire started, so he just laid down, but he felt warm all over. So he, just, he was, was so weary, so he just laid down, and he said, if it wouldn't have been for my faithful dog, I would have froze to death that night, but that dog would not leave him because he knew he was in danger. And that dog... Awakened him to his to his realization. See, he was deceived, and these people are deceived. They think because they have everything that they need materially that this world has to offer, they were right with the Lord. But the Lord also describes them as destitute. Notice in verse seventeen, because thou sayest, "I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing," and knowest not that thou art wretched. And miserable and poor and blind and naked, the word "poor" means destitute of Christian virtues and eternal riches. you know we, we already said that they were cold, they had no no inherent power of action, they had no zeal, no fervor of mind, they were lukewarm, they were characterized by a lack of force. What is the power of the church of the child of God? Is it not the spirit of God working in our hearts? In Acts chapter one verse eight. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. You see, the Spirit of God working in our lives as we yield to Him is our power. In Acts chapter four, when the when the Paul, uh, Peter, and John uh, had healed this lame man, and they were preaching the resurrection, and In Acts chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel. He was filled. He was empowered with the Holy Ghost. That is the power that they needed. And and then in verse 31 of Acts 4, says, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And verse 33 says, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Uh, and when writing to the Romans, in Romans chapter 15, verse 18 through 19, again Paul says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and round about Lycraeum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. See, the power of Paul was not himself. It was the Spirit of God to whom he yielded himself. See, they weren't interested in yielding themselves. They were cold. And the Lord said, you don't know that you're destitute. You have no power of God. No power of God. You know, we can grieve the Spirit of God. We can quench Him. You know, we grieve Him by an unwillingness to yield ourselves to Him. We can quench Him by our sin. And I believe these had grieved or quenched Him by trusting in riches. They turned away from... from Uh, uh, seeking the Lord and and his wisdom and his direction and they were trusting in the things that they had of this world and really saying to the Spirit of God we really don't need you Ephesians 4 verse 30 says and grieve not the Spirit of God whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption they list some things, all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking put away with you all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So they were poor, they were destitute, but without the power of the Spirit of God. They were blind. The word blind here means mentally blinded by their own sufficiency. They could not see reality. The same word Jesus used in Matthew 15, 14 when he said to the Pharisees, let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind. And at the blind lead the blind, both shall fall in the ditch. They're blind because of their self-sufficiency. They thought they could handle it and do it themselves their own way. And instead of being obedient to the faith, the amen, the true and faithful witness... They are also described as naked, without clothing, without the garments of righteousness. This speaks of holy living. In other words, they weren't concerned. Their foremost concern was not, am I pleasing to the Lord, but do I fit in with the world? Will what I do, you know, make somebody in the world uncomfortable? Or will I stick out? Am I going to look different? The yeah, know, the world's looking for something different. They may not appreciate it always. One commentator said, quote, The Laodiceans are typical of the modern world, which revels in that which is natural, which the natural eye can see, but is untouched by the gospel and does not see beyond the veil of the material to the unseen and real eternal spiritual riches, unquote. So that was the condition of the church. Notice the Lord's counsel, thirdly. The Lord's counsel, verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me... Gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. In white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. So he says, to buy of me. We need to give the Lord. He he counsels them to give the Lord preeminence. Buy of me gold tried in the fire. Now this this is referring to pure gold. Gold that's already refined. You know, if you dig gold out of the earth, you have to refine it still. It's not pure. It's still defiled. No, he says, buy of me. The gold that I will give you or the truth that I will give you or the wisdom that I will give you is pure. It is true. You know, when you read a book of the world, when I read books, you know what I do? I, there's always things that I have to throw out that are written by a man. But when I read the word of God, there's nothing in it that I need to throw out. There's nothing in it that's garbage or of no value. It all has value. It is all true. Every bit of it, every word of it, every jot and tittle of it. So when he says here, buy of me gold, he's talking about, uh, referring to him and his wisdom, the counsel, of the, you know, the, that, the counsel that he gives is, is pure, it's holy, it is perfect. It is like most precious gold of highest value. And the counsel of the world is of little value in comparison. The Bible says that the, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, 30 years earlier, as I mentioned, he gave them some counsel concerning the things of this world and the philosophies of this world. And uh, verse 2, Colossians 2, 2, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love and under the, all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And in verse 8, drop down to verse 8, I don't have time to read all this, but, uh, well, let's read verse 4. Verse 3 says, In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in God, in this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you or ruin you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. You see, the teachings of this world if' I'm not in agreement with the word of God, are foolishness, and they will ruin you. And here's a church that was written 30 years prior to what we're reading that was already drifting toward the ways of the world. You know, Proverbs 2323 23 says, Buy the truth and sell it not. God's word is of more value than anything else this world has to offer. Anything this world has to offer. You know, we need to seek Him. Seek ye first Him God. Seek Him. Make Him preeminent. Seek Him with all of our heart. His will, His way. We need to seek it. His counsel. Given preeminence. Secondly, we need to be clothed with white raiment. Being clothed with white raiment speaks of the righteousness of Christ. In other words, we need to be zealous, not cold or indifferent, but zealous to live holy and righteous, zealous to please our Lord. Titus 2 through 15 still tells us, teaches us, that we're to deny ungodliness and word lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and that glorious period of, of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, it's talking about a lifestyle, a manner of living, which includes our talk, our raiment, you know, not to be naked. You know, we need to have an understanding of what, and sensitivity, what biblical nakedness is. You know, the you know, good, good rule of thumb is neck, neck to knee. Got to cover the knee. Anything in between there it's uncovered? The Bible considers basically naked. You know, the places we go, what we watch, our entertainment, what we surf on the internet. You know, these things all affect our minds and our thinking processes. And he says we need to be clothed with the rights with, with garments of 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 with let me clothe you with white raiment. It speaks of the righteousness. Holy living. We need to be zealous. Have a fervor to know what pleases the Lord. See, they were disinterested, like a lot of Americans are. They're not interested, they're not interested in what, and what, how their dress pleases the Lord. They just worry. You know, the only thing they're concerned about is, well, yeah, they, they, they believe Jesus is their Savior. But beyond that, they, they don't think he's interested or don't want him to be interested in their life. And then he says, have your eyes, anoint thine eyes with eye salve. The eyes of your understanding being open. Again, this requires the leading of the Spirit. Self is blind to self. And sin blinds us. And our sin nature will blind us. We must allow the Spirit of God to search us and to lead us. You know, We can't understand truth without the Spirit of God. First Corinthians 12, or 2, verses 12 and 16 talks about, you know, Uh, uh, spiritual things are discerned by the Spirit. So we have to have our eyes opened by the Spirit of God. And again, it requires a yielding to Him, allowing Him to search us and to lead us. So that's the Lord's counsel. Then I want you to notice the Lord's command in verses 19 and 20. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also came and sat down with my father in his throne. So the command, the command is a command of love. You despite the harsh. Condemnation the Lord gave to this church. He loves them. He loved them. And so his command of love is be zealous, have some fervor, be serious about your standing before God and your fellowship with God, and repent. Of your apathy. Open your heart completely to him. You know, too many Christians are partial givers. Well, you know, that's descriptive of today's. I've been describing them. They give to the Lord what's easy, what doesn't hurt or cost them, what doesn't require change in their life or make them uncomfortable. And that's where we're going to stop. <sighs> that lady say one time, I just don't go to funerals or viewings. I feel uncomfortable. I said, well, you need to get out of your comfort zone. It's not for you. The viewing is not for you. It's for the family. Jesus didn't call us to be ministered unto. He called us to minister. I mean, if, if I didn't go to things that I was comfortable, I'd never make go to the hospital visit, and I'd never go to a funeral. Well, I might go to the funeral, but I wouldn't go to the viewing. Because the viewing is where you, more, you talk to the people more directly. Is at the viewing. Now, the funeral, I'd just get up and preach. I wouldn't have to talk to the people other than you know, like this. But I wouldn't have to be on a personal level. That's easier. It's easier to preach the funeral than it is to talk to Junior after the funeral. But it's because I talked to Junior after the funeral that we had opportunities of ministry with Junior. See, I had to make myself uncomfortable. That's what God expects. That's what he asks of us. That's what he asks of us. You know, he is our Lord, and we are to yield to him our all. And it's when we yield our all to him and he makes disorder out of what's comfortable for us and then he can teach us and bring us into a place of closer fellowship and greater usefulness. Yet whatever we withhold hinders our fellowship and his overcoming power to work in our lives. It hinders it. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 24, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So here's a command of love that he gives. You need to learn to deny yourself. You need to be zealous and you need to repent. Open your heart completely Give your life completely over to the Lord. And I want you to notice one final thing here. This command is to the individual. If you notice he says in verse 20, if any man. Now this letter was addressed to the church. I get that. But you know the church is made up of individuals. Individuals. Spurgeon said this, well, we must not talk about setting the church right. We must pray for grace, each one for himself, for the text does not say if the church will open the door, but if any man hear my voice and open the door, it must be done by individuals. The church will only get right by each man getting right, unquote. See, Christ died to save sinners, individuals, individuals. You know, you may be a number at the bank, at the IRS, even at the grocery store with your little card things, whatever they are. But our God knows us by name. He knows us by name. He knows the very hairs of our head. You are an individual person to him of value. And so he's saying to us, open the door. If any man will open, will open. You know, God, anyone that will open, God will fellowship and bless with favor. You know, home, home and hunt. Painted a painting it's called The Light of the World. It depicts the Lord Jesus Christ in his wriggle robes knocking on the door of a cottage that is run down and neglected. One man looked at the painting and said to Mr. Hunt, there's something missing in the painting. There's no door handle. Mr. Hunt said, that's because the door handle is on the inside. There's no door handle on the outside. Jesus is knocking. You control the handle, and He says, "If you will open the door, if you will open your heart, He will come in and sup with Him, and He with me. And to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down in my Father with my Father in His throne." So if you will open the door of your heart. Open every area of your heart. He will come in and sup with. The word sup here means I will make him to share in my most intimate and blissful intercourse. You do have a close friend that you can sit down and you just enjoy sitting down and talking and sharing. The blessings of life. The trials of life. And you know somebody that you would enjoy doing that with. Well, that's kind of the picture here. And he says, I also will sit. You will you'll be granted to sit with me in my throne. This, this sit means to set or appoint a fixed place, a fixed abode in the kingdom. Act as a judge. But the door handle is on our side. We have to open it. You know, Peter said, Lord, we have left all and followed you. They had. They left their work, their businesses. They've forsaken all and followed. What would we have? And he said, you're going to sit in 12 thrones and judge 12 tribes of Israel. And any man that hath left houses or lands and so on, Shall receive a hundredfold, an everlasting life. But to see, again, the door handle is on our side. We have to open it. So he's saying to the church of Laodicea, look, the change is up to you. Here's what you need to do, but the change is up to you. You have to be willing to change. So how is it with you tonight? Are you cold or hot, indifferent, satisfied with things of the world? Or are you seeking with fervor to please the Lord with your life? And you know, the person that opens a door will not go without his reward. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also came and sat down with my father in his throne. There is a reward to anyone that will open their heart to him. Have you opened your heart to him? Let's pray.